welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ news and public affairs show featuring music, events, and interviews both local and global. From the WFHB studios in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Blooming Out. Good evening and welcome to Blooming Out on WFHB. I'm Jeff Poling. And I'm Ryan Shaddy. On tonight's episode, we will have your LGBTQ news and our weekly event calendar. First this evening, we have Shane Winmeyer, the executive director of Campus Pride, joining us. Campus Pride represents the leading national nonprofit 501c3 organization for student leaders and campus groups working to create a safer college environment for LGBTQ students. The organization is a volunteer-driven network for and by student leaders. The primary objective of, of Campus Pride is to develop necessary resources, programs, and services to support LGBTQ and ally students on college campuses across the United States. Founded in the fall of 2001 and launched a year later in October of 2002, Campus Pride started as an online community and resource clearinghouse under the name Campus Pride Net. In 2006, the organization broadened its outreach efforts and restructured as the current educational nonprofit organization, Campus Pride. As part of the restructuring process, the Lambda 10 project for LGBT fraternity and sorority issues became an educational initiative of Campus Pride. The executive director is national LGBTQ civil rights leader and campus pioneer, Shane Winmeyer. Shane is a 1997 graduate from Indiana University. He, ha- he and his husband of 21 years live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Shane, welcome to the show tonight. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. I am glad to have you aboard. You know, I remember it was back, um, when, did we have th- when did we have that um, Alphabet Soup conference here in Bloomington? That was back in 2009, thereabouts? <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, and we had uh, we had you here on campus for that, and and I remember that being one of the very first times, if not the first time, that I had met you. And I was fascinated by all of the things that you did and, and, and your organization did. And I'm really happy to know here seven years long, here seven years uh, afterwards, you're still running strong. Yeah, no, we've had a lot of good successes and achievements with Campus Pride. So tell us a little bit more about your organization. What, um, what, what? How did you get started? Uh, where did you get the idea for Campus Pride, and um, what do you do? Yeah, no, um, I appreciate being on uh, <laughs> with you all tonight. Um, uh, you know, Campus Pride has come a long way. Um, we were uh, founded as an online clearinghouse back in two thousand one. Uh, it was originally called Campus Pride Net. And myself and a couple colleagues, which, you know, back then I was, you know, in my early 20s, uh, thought it was uh, important to have a clearinghouse for, you know, LGBTQ students uh, to create student groups on campuses and to find resources, you know, such as, uh, you know, how to fundraise, how to, you know, what to do your first student uh, organization meeting, you know, uh, many times back in, in, you know, the, the 90s. Um, there wasn't a lot of support. Um, there still isn't a lot of support, but, you know, back then it was, you know, very unlikely that there were student organizations, and oftentimes those student organizations would come and go. And so, you know, Campus Pride got started as an online network at Clearinghouse, and uh, in 2006, 2007, we got our 501c3, and 
uh, became a full-fledged national nonprofit organization with, you know, several signature programs such as our our national index, the Campus Pride Index, uh, which you know a lot about. And, you know, IU Bloomington has been one of our leading institutions in the country when it comes to policy programs and practices. And, um, you know, then we have our camp program, our summer leadership camp. We do college fairs across the country. So, you know, we've come a long way, and, you know, Campus Pride is still growing. Uh, this year, for the first time ever, we did the, you know, the absolute worst campuses for LGBTQ students, which, you know, sadly, um, are campuses that have used uh, religion uh, as a way to, you know, perpetuate uh, harm and, and ignorance toward LGBTQ young people. So lots to talk about, and so excited to be here with you. Yeah, and, you know, having you on here, uh, IU has made the list of, of some of your top colleges in the last few years, and so we're going to bring it a little local. Um, you were a graduate from IU in 1997. How was the climate here when you were here? You know, I came at a really great time because um, it was 1995 when I arrived on campus, and uh, there had been a lot of uh, really hard-fought uh, um uh, community activism prior to when I got there for the LGBTQ uh, Resource Center uh, that, uh, you know, Doug Bowder, uh, the coordinator, director of the center, had just started um, in the office. And, you know, there was a lot of drama and a lot of political strife uh, that happened, you know, in leading up to the funding of that center in the state of Indiana. Uh, so, you know, I got there after it all was achieved. And, you know, got to experience the very first year of volunteering in the office and, and working with Doug and, you know, helping, you know, create some programs and services. So it was a great time to be there from a standpoint of the office. Um, you know, as far as the local Bloomington community, I mean, it has always been a an, o, an oasis of progressive, uh, you know, community members, um, even around LGBTQ issues. Um, you know, it's not perfect, of course, but... Um, compared to where I grew up in Kansas and, you know, in, in rural areas of the country. I mean, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a wonderful place to get an education. Um, uh, I would like to say that, you know, it's continued to improve and gotten better. Um, you know, there were professors and there, you know, even in my graduate program, uh, there's, you know, there was a lot of ignorance around what it meant to be LGBTQ and, you know, trying to get LGBTQ experiences into the classroom uh, beyond just policies, I think, is where I was trying to push IU at the time I was a student. Now, did your growing up in Kansas have um, any bearing on what you currently do with uh, Campus Pride and as their executive as their executive director? Well, I think you know, being a first generation college student, um, growing up uh, in you know in a rural community, um, not having access to a lot of resources. Uh, that you might find in a in an urban or um, you know a, l- a large city or a progressive city, um, you know really shape how you look at things and how you make decisions. And so I would say that growing up in Kansas, uh, being a first generation college student, uh, going to a small liberal arts publicly funded institution, then going to IU, um, you know informs kind of how I look at higher education, how I uh, you know try to lead Campus Pride in creating greater access and equitable uh, treatment of LGBTQ students um, and making sure everyone's voice is heard. Um, Oftentimes, you know, we've seen in the movement for LGBTQ equality, um, 
you know, we've seen that a lot of our attention has been placed in large urban centers or at large public institutions that, you know, have more resources. But, you know, we've run into a time now in 2016 where we have all the haves and all the have-nots. And what we find is there's a real sharp division between the campuses like IU that have had resources and had a strong commitment for a while now and campuses that are still in the dark um, when it comes to LGBTQ work, largely because they haven't had the focus or the volunteers or the support or the financial resources to do much work. So I think growing up in Kansas, you know, just growing up with limited access has really informed kind of my work ethic and, you know, how we do our work with Campus Pride. You know, thinking back a little bit, Shane, um, how have... Uh, what are the differences in challenges and issues between uh, when you were in college and um, how they are now? <laughs> well, um, I mean, there's there's a lot of differences. I mean, as a movement, as um, young people, um, you know, millennials are much different in how they approach uh, life, how they approach diversity. Um, you know, uh, you know, back when. <laughs> Back, you know, 20 years ago uh, when I was younger and still identified as a, a young person, a youth, um, you know, I would um, say that we oftentimes were forced to be in boxes of identity. So I was a, a gay man, you know, and that was one box, being gay and being a man. And, um, you know, I wasn't able to look at kind of gender expression the way that we are today. Uh, or at least it wasn't readily talked about or discussed or wasn't something that uh, was part of the lexicon of how we look at higher education. And so, you know, I think today's young person, you know, has its own challenges um, in looking at its identity, but we, we definitely are much more approving of intersections and seeing the gray in how we choose to express our gender, for instance, or how we choose to express ourselves um, as far as our faith or spirituality or, you know, even defining, you know, you know, how we look at multiracial or mixed race people and realizing that, you know, each of us has our own intersections and because of when we grew up, maybe we didn't express them, you know, now as an adult, the way that we maybe would have if we would have grown up in a different era. So I think young people today have a lot of, um, a lot of benefits. Um, I think trans young people are probably, um, you know, from our standpoint, uh, one of the populations that, you know, is now being discussed that back in the day, I mean, trans awareness, gender non-binary students talking about, you know, uh, you know, just the impact uh, of violence and harassment on, on trans youth and particularly uh, queer youth of color, trans youth of color um, is something that, you know, is, it, it's a it's a good progression, but we still have a lot more work to be done. Absolutely, and you go back, I you know I I, I think back to to our conference in two thousand nine and think about all of the um, all of the letters we had then. Well, just think about what we've done in the last seven years. We've added a ton more since then, and on top of that, I can only imagine how many letters we've added in our alphabet soup since. Uh, since 1997 or even 1995 when you helped Doug set up, set, set up this office here in Bloomington? Well, I mean, 
mean, Doug really set it up. I just helped. Um, and, you know, uh, Embletech was interesting about, you know, the Alphabet Soup Conference. First of all, it's celebrating, I believe, its 25th anniversary this year, um, which is exciting. Um, and to, re- you know, back in 1992-94, you know, I was, I attended uh, one of the very first Embletech conferences. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, I think that that, that shows you know, a variety of things, but for me, it reminds me of how far we've come, and, you know, it's great to have a conference that is student-run and uh, has the support of students, uh, you know, across the Midwest um, that, you know, is now celebrating 25 years. Yeah, and that show uh, is is very tough to put on, which is why you haven't seen it back in Indiana, or, well, back at Indiana, <laughs> rather, <laughs> since then. They're having, it, um, they're having it on Navy Pier, if that kind of tells you anything. I mean, it's that big. Yeah, it's a, it was a great conference, Shane. What um, what are you uh, doing in terms of advocacy right now with your group? Yeah, well, um, you know, Campus Pride has a, a few um, uh, you know, objectives as far as mission uh, of building future leaders and creating safer, more inclusive LGBT campus communities. Um, and part of that is advocacy work, right? Like, how do we advocate for, for safer, more inclusive communities? And, and one of the big projects that we um, received funding about, um, you know, four or five months ago is from the Gill Foundation, and it was uh, basically to uh, focus on campuses that um, have requested the legal uh, right uh, to legally discriminate against LGBTQ young people in higher education. And um, as we may or may not know, I mean, your, your listeners, um, there's something called Title IX. And Title IX basically looks at equitable treatment um, related to gender and ensures that, you know, simply that you have a women's and a men's basketball team, right? Like, like you have, you know, gender equity in sports, for instance. Um, you know, the Obama administration clarified in 2014 about um, how, you know, transgender is included um, as part of the definition of gender. And so, you know, campuses quickly started talking about trans students and how equitable treatment of trans students would be making sure they have access to, you know, bathroom facilities, uh, making sure that locker rooms are inclusive of trans people. And so um, Campus Pride has done a lot of advocating around, uh, you know, Title IX and around um, particularly these exemptions that, about, you know, roughly 100 campuses have applied or received. Um, these are religious-based campuses who can get a Title IX exemption based on their religious views. And um, Campus Pride, you know, much like our young people, have decided that, you know, regardless of your religious freedom and your religious views, discrimination is wrong. And so, you know, you know if, if you're going to discriminate against a transgender young person on your campus and not allow them to have access to a locker room or access to your residence hall or kick them off campus or in some way, you know, discriminate uh, through a legal protection uh, by exempting Title IX, then we're going to call you out on it. And so Campus Pride created a shame list to really call out religion-based bigotry at its worst, and we named uh, 102 campuses to the absolute worst campuses for LGBTQ students uh, on our shame list, and you can find that at campuspride.org slash shameless, but people are shocked today, regardless of religious views, that a young person can, you know, be discriminated against because of who they are um, at a campus. 
regardless of whether it be a religious campus. It's just it's 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 mean spirited, um, you know, religious behavior that you know I think we are reaching a tipping point where people you know see religion and they respect religion and everyone should have the religious views, but discrimination and bigotry is wrong regardless of how you you mask it. Absolutely, yeah. You you hit the nail on the head right there. And uh, you live in a state right now with with some issues of your own, don't you? <laughs> yeah, so North Carolina, right? I, yep. I, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, and we'll we'll uh, discuss more in depth into that because I think that's a point that I want to talk talk about. Uh, you've had, of course, you've um, you've had your say in the debate in North Carolina. Uh, I've read some of your your pieces written to the governor. And uh, we're gonna, we're definitely going to hit on that uh, here in the second half of of the show. Uh, but one last quick question, Shane, um, before we head into our first break, what is um, what is Campus Pride uh, doing um, th- that will really help uh, college students in the future uh, be able to get a little further ahead? You know, we, we have our scholarship database. So, um, you know, when we talk about getting ahead, it's about access to higher education. And so uh, Campus Pride is the only national organization that is focused on, you know, helping high school students get to the right college. And so we have our college fair program. We also have a scholarship database, which helps them find scholarships to go to school. And so, you know, Campus Pride is linking uh, LGBTQ young people, um, primarily, you know, young people of color and first-generation students, uh, with the access, um, right, because we talk a lot about, you know, equality, but we have to make sure that everyone has access. And so, you know, the College Fair Program, which right now um, we have one coming up in New York, uh, we have one coming up in Boston, uh, L.A., uh, we have one in St. Louis. Uh, we need to get IU to sign up for these college fairs, actually. Um, maybe you can put a shout-out to IU to make sure that they're represented because it's about showing up, and it's about showing that you're committed to LGBT students. And so these colleges that show up at these fairs are sending a message that we want to recruit you, just like Harvey Milk said, you know, we're here to recruit you. Um, and, you know, I think that's going to change the future for LGBT young people, is when you get colleges recognizing that they're a demographic that they need to recruit and that they need to retain. It costs more money to recruit a new student than it does to retain a current one. And so colleges like IU and across the country need to think about retention efforts as well as recruitment efforts. And that's where Campus Pride has been, you know, really keeping the eye on the ball there um, and keeping that rolling forward is getting higher education to commit to academic success for its LGBTQ students and getting, you know, forms like the Common App and the Universal App, you know, to ask optional demographic questions on college admission forms so students can self-identify if they choose to so they can, you know, monitor, you know, did the students actually graduate. Much like we look at students of color or athletes, you know, we know what their grade point averages are. We know if they graduate in four years. We don't know that for LGBTQ students, so there's no responsibility that the campus takes in ensuring their academic success. So that's where Campus Pride has been putting the most pressure lately. Awesome. All right, Shane. We will be back with you in just a few moments. No problem. We will continue with our conversation with Shane Winmeyer, the executive director of Campus Pride, here in a few moments 
Uh, Ryan, would you like to take us to our first music break? Absolutely, JP. All right. New York City-based indie rock band, The Shondas, have returned with a new single, Carry On Crow, featuring their signature feminist anthems and in-your-face power hooks. The group is refreshingly charming, confident, and powerful. Carry On Crow is the second single from the Shondas' upcoming fall release of Brighton. I've written a lot over the years about people who have wronged me in one way or another, but this song came from the perspective of seeing someone you get love ba- get badly damaged by another person's narcissism and abuse, says the Shondas' front woman, Louisa uh, Solomon. Songwriting is an amazing outlet when you're overwhelmed by your rage and its futility. And I have to imagine a lot of people can relate to this song. In this album, the Shondas have toned it down slightly without sacrificing the band's signature edge, intensity, and skill. I think we've hit our pop rock stride. Hopefully, without losing any punk spirit, we have written some really honest rock songs with some gentler moments here and there. More musical nuance, more levity, and the vital addition of new, incredible musicianship. Brighton is the first album release since two, 2013's The Garden. It is set to release tomorrow. Here is the Shondas' newest single, Carry On Crow. Yeah, 
And you are listening to Blooming Out on WFHB. You just heard Carrion Crow by the Shondas. It's the latest hit on their newest album, Brighton, and makes its debut tomorrow. And we are back um, speaking with Executive Director of Campus Pride, Shane Winmeyer. Shane, uh, you know, <laughs> we had a great first half. I can't wait to see what we, we talk about now. Um, let's get into a little bit about what's happening in North Carolina. Your governor is a bigot, <laughs> plain and simple. That's, and that's what's going on. Um, what ha- how has Campus Pride been getting into, um, into the issues in North Carolina right now? Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say, though, I mean, Indiana, you're used to this having a governor like that, correct? <laughs> yes, you called me out. <laughs> so uh, it's funny, I tend to pick states to move to or to spend time with where, you know, Kansas, Indiana, North Carolina. Uh, <laughs> You've done a, you know, you've done a cut-up job, Shane. <laughs> right. So our, our governor is just um, making all the wrong decisions, and... Um, you know, I live in the city of Charlotte, and keep in mind, much like Bloomington, the city of Charlotte, the mayor, uh, the elected officials, you know, did the right thing. They passed an inclusive uh, LGBT public accommodations, uh, you know, law for the city, uh, and, you know, it was going to go into effect, um, and that was uh, in early April uh, when it was going to go into effect, and the governor decided to hold a special session with the North Carolina General Assembly and basically um, spent, you know, roughly thirty, forty thousand, 40000 uh, approximately that I, I recall in a special session to keep the, the city of Charlotte from implementing that law. And they, they even went a step further in saying that no municipality could pass any, you know, in, uh, non-discrimination laws in the future, right? So they basically took the right away from the municipalities to govern themselves when it comes to discrimination. They also took away legal recourse for, you know, a number of civil rights, including, you know, people of color being able to, to have the legal recourse. They incorporated into the bill a, you know, a living wage uh, restriction uh, where, you know, only the, the state government could pass any living wages uh, changes. Uh, municipalities couldn't do that. It, it, was, it was a mess, and it was definitely something that was highly political for the governor and the General Assembly to do. Um, it happened under the, <laughs> the, the veil of um, secrecy. It was introduced the same morning it was passed and signed by the governor. So it all happened within a period of 12 hours. I mean, this is unheard of in politics and in, in what we would call a, a modern democracy. Um, and so, you know, the governor knew it was wrong. Um, the governor didn't expect the backlash uh, from, I think, outside the LGBTQ community. Um, there's been over 100... Um, CEOs of corporations from across the country that have um, stepped in and said this is wrong. But ultimately, the governor has dug in his heels along with the North Carolina General Assembly. Um, it will basically come down to November and the election. I think the election, you know, has to be a, uh, a mandate on, you know, are we going to continue with this governor and his, uh, you know, uh, you know, awful decisions that have cost, you know, the city of Charlotte as well as the entire state you know, millions of dollars and potentially even, you know, more money um, in the future. What, um, when, when you think back to all of the things that you've, 
again, you've you've lived in Kansas, you've been in Indiana, uh, you now live in North Carolina. What makes this instance a little different than um, maybe something you've been through in the in the in, in the past? Well, you know, every time, I mean, the movement has changed so much. Um, you know, I think what is um, what has come full circle is that our movement started out with trans people leading the way. You know, if you think about the Stonewall riots, you know, it was trans people, you know, gender non-binary people who were at the forefront. And then because of how, um, you know, class and um, a privilege insert itself into politics, um, you know, trans people were pushed aside in the in the 80s and 90s, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, the AIDS epidemic, you know, caused us to think about gay men and, you know, lesbians, and it, it was seen as more tolerable in the political realm uh, to fight for rights for gay and lesbian people, and then, you know, um, bisexual was understood, and, you know, and we didn't really talk much about trans people, and, and so I find it fitting that, you know, we're back to the point of coming full circle to say, you know what? the discrimination of trans people is real and, uh, you know, the violence is real and we need to do something about it. We can't just focus our movement in an insular manner around sexual identity. And ultimately, you know, the crux of all this discrimination is really on how we express ourselves. Um, you know, you can see this in a lot of the work I used to do in fraternities and sororities. You know, it is now very much acceptable acceptable for a gay man to join a brotherhood uh, or a sisterhood for a, a, a woman. But, you know, ultimately, if that gay man were to express themselves in a more effeminate way, you know, that's the real challenge. And so, you know, we've gotten back to this idea of gender expression, which, you know, is everyone has a gender expression. Um, and, you know, ultimately for trans people, their identity being non-binary or, you know, a trans woman or a trans man you know, I'm glad that we're at the point to have this very healthy dialogue, you know, within our community about being truly inclusive of trans people and, and not just doing it as kind of this cisgender way of, you know, looking at people and saying, yeah, you know, we have the T on the LGBT, but we really don't understand. And I hope that we'll see greater inclusion of intersex, you know, talking about intersex and talking about you know, asexual people, um, pansexual, you know, middle sexualities. Um, there's just so much we can learn within our community to be better advocates for, you know, gender justice and, you know, uh, you know, justice around sexuality and the spectrum that truly, you know, represents the entire rainbow of who we are. Shane, is it a true, um, and I, I did see this on the uh, website, on the Campus Pride, under trans advocacy, that more than 90% of two- and four-year institutions in the United States remain completely inaccessible and inhospitable to Repeat transgender that one more time, students. JP. Repeat that statistic one more time. Well, more than 90% of two- to four-year in- institutions in the U.S. remain completely inaccessible and inhospitable. To transgender students. Yeah, so what we're talking about there is um, like gender inclusive housing, uh, restroom facilities that are that are inclusive of trans students. Uh, we're talking about non-discrimination statements that include the words gender identity. Um, when we look at all that in a in a big picture, um, that statistic is very true. Um, you know, only about I believe sixteen to eighteen percent of campuses have. 
a non-discrimination statement that's inclusive of gender identity. And you have um, your 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 website, your um, your uh, organization has uh, a Campus Pride Trans Policy Clearinghouse, right? Yes, if you go to campuspride.org, we do have a trans policy clearinghouse, and that's where, um, you know, pretty much is the go-to place for uh, higher education and trans inclusion. And you can get to it directly by going to campuspride.org slash T is in trans, P is in policy, and C is in clearinghouse, um, campuspride.org slash TPC, or you can just click on the research tab when you get to the main page. Well, I've got to tell you, I am really impressed with uh, your your website. The amount of information, um, resources that can be extracted from it is is really impressive. You guys cover everything. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, Dr. Jenny Beeman, they they are our trans uh, policy clearinghouse coordinator. And they've done a wonderful job, and, um, you know, it, I, I like to take credit for some things, but many of our volunteers, I mean, we're a volunteer-driven organization, so um, it can be rough sometimes, and, of course, we'd love to have more funding, as you all understand how important funding is, but we do our best with what we have. Shane, if, if, you're a, uh, if you return back a little bit, um, back to our uh, worst-of-the-worst kind of uh, that you list that you just um, released a couple of weeks ago. Uh, can you name off a few of those colleges? <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, so, I mean, you can go to campuspride.org slash shame list, right? And we, we called it the shame list because we really wanted to call out a religion-based um, discrimination, um, you know, that is, that, that, you know, is, is bigoted, um, and that, you know, perpetuates, uh, you know, bias toward LGBT young people. And so, you know, we feel it's, sh- it's careless, but it's also um, shameful to use religion in a way that discriminates. Um, you know, and, and I'm not saying people don't have the right to do it. I'm just saying we believe that it's shameful. And so um, we created the shame list, and, you know, um, many LGBT young people, as you know, uh, who have uh, suffered from religious-based uh, uh, bigotry or intolerance, you know, are at high risk of, you know, depression, suicidality. You know, it's, it's another complicating factor. And so, you know, some of the campuses you might know, um, I'm trying to think, we do have, I believe, a couple in Indiana even. So let me see if I can pull those out real fast. There's 102 of them, and you can scroll down the page. On the page, you can learn why they are on the shame list, why they are... Um, uh, are the worst campus for LGBTQ students. Uh, one of them is Bethel College, uh, which is what, Mishawaka, Indiana? Um, and um, I'm, do you know where that is? Yes, yes, absolutely. And also Indiana Wesleyan University as well is on that list, I do believe. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, th- we had two criterion. Um, first of all, they could be on there for either criterion. Um, the first criteria was that they have had to um, have sought, uh, applied, received one or the other a Title IX exemption to openly and freely discriminate against an LGBT young person. And so uh, that's obviously what Bethel College has applied uh, for a Title IX exemption, so they could restrict students based on their sexual identity, gender identity, their marital status, uh, their pregnancy, or if they receive an abortion, they want to be able to kick that student off campus or, or not give them access to a level of service or 
to a um, you know a program of the campus. Shane, I want to ask a quick follow-up question to that really quick. What is Campus Pride doing to get rid of these exemptions? What what can't, I mean, obviously there always has to be a religious-based exemption, and, and this might be a difficult question for you because it's going to be, a, I mean, it's going to be a hard one to answer. What can we do to, to ensure that no student is discriminated against doesn't make a difference which college you go to? Well, I think we have to understand and we have to vocalize um, our own religious freedom. So, you know, as a Christian, you know, your values um, are that, you know, it's not a sin to be LGBTQ. I think we're going to reach a tipping point, if we haven't already, where people understand that, you know, being LGBTQ is not a sin. Regardless of you being Christian Catholic, there's many people who are Catholic who don't believe what the Pope says, who, you know, who are Christian, who you know, their Baptist minister may say this, but in their heart they believe that their their kid who's gay is not a sin, right, just for who they are. And so we have to be able, as individuals, to claim our own religious freedom and not let people who are using it in bigoted ways claim Christianity. So we need to see more of that. Um, at the end of the day, there is this legal right for a Title IX exemption. Um, people have a legal right. Campuses can apply for these Title IX exemptions, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And uh, a good example is Pepperdine University. Uh, you know, in I believe it was January of this year, um, had written the Department of Education. They had a Title IX exemption from the '80s, and they wrote the Department of Education and said, "We don't want it any longer. We're still a religious-based institution that is religiously controlled, but we don't want this exemption any longer because we don't feel." It's what we should be doing as a campus. And they wouldn't elaborate on that. But I think what they realize is that as Christians, um, as people of faith, they don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And at the end of the day, campuses are businesses. Nobody wants to send their young person to a campus that discriminates against anyone, right? And so um, that's why we created the shame list, is so corporations, you know, businesses, individuals can know these campuses, you know, believe that their religion, you know, Jesus, whoever they believe in, right, will discriminate against an LGBT young person, and they want the right to do that. So, so I think that's one of the, the key things Campus Pride is doing, is just to educate the American public that in higher education, we still have religious-based bigotry that is discriminatory toward LGBT young people. So, Shane, I have a personal, um, I guess, a problem that I notice a lot of universities allow, and I don't think I'm alone with this, and maybe you'd like to possibly comment on it, because I'm, I've been very curious as to how it is allowed. And I do understand freedom of speech. I do understand that, you know, that the universities are to allow um, various um, speakers onto their campus and speak about, you know, various issues. However, there tends to be this growing, um, I'll, I'll call them preachers of hate movement. And there are many universities, I believe, or maybe, maybe there aren't many, but there are certain universities that allow these people onto the campus mm -hmm. and allow them to broadcast to Brother yell Jeff in Bloomington at they they allow them to yell at students walking by 
and call them out as sinners, as, you know, whatever, and are really happy to let everyone know that they are going to burn in hell. I don't understand a uni- that how universities are allowing that. I th- my personal opinion is that it's hate speech, and I don't think it should be allowed. Could you? Would you mind commenting on that? Sure. No, and, and I've dealt with this for, you know, actually since I was a college student. We had, um, I grew up in Kansas, and as you know, Fred Phelps, one of the notorious anti, you know, gay, just hate preachers out there, um, you know, kind of, I want to say, started this movement, but he was very well known for going to campuses and, and doing exactly what you're saying. And so I grew up with Fred Phelps doing that, and, and he actually scared um, you know, Maya Angelou from coming to my undergraduate campus when I was a student. Wow. I was very aware of it. That's sad. Yeah, it's very sad, exactly. And um, Campus Pride actually has a quick resource. Just if you go to our site, it's called How to Handle Hate Creatures on Campus. Oh, okay. We, that's what we call them, and it's just some tips, right? Um, you know, public campuses have to have free speech zones. Now, you can govern those free speech zones and put them, you know, in different places. But um, as a public campus, you have to have free speech areas. Um, sometimes you don't have to allow amplification in those free speech areas because they're close to academic settings. But each campus has to look at how they, you know, create free speech. Um, the best way to deal with free speech is to exercise your own free speech. And that get back to what I was saying earlier with religious freedom. Religious freedom doesn't just go one way. It goes both ways. And people, you know, religious freedom is not about being anti-LGBT. It's also about being, you know, pro-LGBT and supportive and realizing that being LGBT is not a sin. And so dealing with hate preachers, I think, is an important lesson for us all to understand about exercising our own free speech. And it was Morris Dees of the Southern Poverty Law Center who once said, you know, people have, whether we like it or not, people have the right, right, to, to hate, right? Like, people have the right to hate, but they don't have the right to hurt someone or act on that hate in a way that will hurt someone, right? And so it's about the action, right? It's not about the thought, right? And whether we like it or not, the thought itself, unless it turns into a threat directed at an individual, right, which is sometimes hard to prove in a court of law, right, these free speech areas are exactly, you know, the place where these hate preachers will go. And, and our part is to make sure our students also exercise their free speech. But we have a number of strategies for these hate preachers. First of all, you know, try to ignore them. Don't give them any media attention. Do not touch them. Many of them um, are... Um, you know, linked into legal organizations that if you touch them, uh-huh. they'll try to sue, sue the group or campus. Interesting. So, uh-huh. um, you know, we've done a, a classic way to deal with hate creatures is create kind of a lemonade campaign where for every, you know, hour that they're there, you know, you get people to donate, your professors, your other students, donate a dollar or $10 to an LGBT cause. That's wonderful. Okay. I like that. In, yeah, and so these are old tricks that, you know, I've learned over the years that, that we've passed on on our website. Um, the Matthew Shepard Foundation, you know, created the, age, the angel campaign where they created angels and basically, you know, were in the free speech areas and blocked them out, right, with these big old angels. Wonderful. Um, you know, one campus where I was at is kind of, um, well, actually, I, I, was, I heard the story at a campus of uh, Fred Phelps had went to picket a funeral because he would oftentimes... You know, he's now passed away, but sadly, you know, his family is carrying on. The, his legacy moves on. Yeah, yeah, but um, they um, showed up at a 
funeral of a, um, a military officer to picket, and they stayed at a hotel. It was a small community. They stayed at a hotel, and, you know, they ultimately have the legal right to do this. Um, again, just because you have the right to do it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. But the, the folks in that community were smart. They, um, you know, while they were sleeping that night, all of them went and parked their cars in that parking lot and parked it so they couldn't get out of the parking lot the next <laughs> morning when they woke up for the funeral. So they were literally blocked in, and the one towing company in town uh, put something on his voicemail like, sorry, we're at the funeral. <laughs> we will not be open until, you know, 6 o'clock or whatever time to, to help with anything. So that community was really clever in how they chose to deal with that. That's, that's awesome. Funny. Yeah, that's awesome. I have I have two things really quick, Shane. First, um, I, I want to. I wish we would turn the rules on these people who bring their fire and brimstone signs to campus and say, "Oh, you're going to be, uh, <laughs> you're going to be uh, internally, uh, internally thrown in flames because of this, that, and the other." Mostly, it's because they're. I mean, they're really hateful, and with as much hate as as what they have in their. In, in their souls and in their bodies and in their minds, I really do believe that that if if heaven or hell exists, they're probably not going to wind up where they think they're going going to wind up. That's the first thing. Second thing is uh, I want to head back to the whole Title IX thing for a second. So you're telling me that we can still give your tax money, my tax money, JP's tax money, Sarah's tax money. To schools who discriminate. So let me let me clarify for you. So a religious institution uh, that is religiously controlled can uh, apply for a Title IX exemption, right? And it is true that these religious institutions, many of them, receive taxpayer dollars through research grants, through um, scholarships for you know Pell grants and things of that nature. So tax dollars are going to support these private religious institutions who, in turn, are now applying for an exemption to discriminate on the basis of, you know, gender identity or sexual identity, or, you know, in the past, they've discriminated against pregnant women out of wedlock. They've discriminated against, um, you know, young women who do have um, an abortion or, you know, uh, practice, you know, with Planned Parenthood, um, you know, take care of their own bodies and their their own uh, health. Um, And so, that is true that many of the campuses on the absolute worst list um, are getting taxpayer dollars. And I think that's a real question to ask. And, you know, many of these campuses, too, are considered, you know, by some to be um, the safest campuses. Um, there was a list that just came out last month that said, you know, uh, BYU, Brigham Young University, Liberty University, were among the safest campuses. And I'm like, how you know, how awful is that that these national lists have basically left out LGBT students when it considers safety. What they're talking about is, like, you know, how much alcohol is consumed or how many, you know, crime reports are reported. But they forget about the religious intolerance and the the persecution that a young person feels who almost takes their life with a suicide or depression. I know. Okay, Shane, that's all the time we have um, for this evening with you, and I, we've got to get you. We have so much more to talk about. We do, Shane. Please come back on the show again. Yeah, anytime. And check out our website at campuspride.org. And, you know, our resources, uh, we have a job board that we just launched called campuspride.jobs. 
So if you know of any employers that want to reach out to LGBTQ young people, um, you know, campuspride.jobs uh, is a great resource. And I would love to come back anytime for y'all. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you this evening, Shane. All right. Take care. Have Thanks, a Shane. Have a good night. All right. All right. Pride.com brings the intro for our next music break, which I'm particularly fond of. Courtney Act is an Australian drag queen, pop singer, entertainer, and reality television personality. As Courtney Act, uh, Jenick was a semi-finalist on Australian Idol in 2003 and was the third singer of the competition to release an official solo single. The single, Rub Me Wrong, was released in 2004 and peaked at number 29 on the single's chart. Act was the runner-up in season six of RuPaul's Drag Race, but the runner-up of RuPaul can do no can do more than dress up in drag and interview a ton of unsuspecting Trump supporters. <laughs> the girls got pipes. She spent the summer performing her one woman show, The Girl from Oz in Provincetown. And no, it was not about the Oz you think. Being from Down Under, Miss Act was referencing her motherland of Australia in her show. She sang a number of songs, either written or sung by Australians. One of those numbers was Stan Alive. For those of you who don't know, the Bee Gees are Australian, but this ain't just any version of Stan Alive. Act slowed it down, created a sultry, soulful, and evocative masterpiece. And th- this is, again, from pride.com. And so here is Courtney Act with Stan Alive. Understand 
For WFHB and Blooming Out comes from the Back Tour, downtown Bloomington's queerest bar, dance club, and venue. From live bands and DJs to drag shows and karaoke, there is something for everyone every day of the week. The Back Door is located at 207 South College in the alley behind Atlas Bar. And more information can be found on Facebook or online at bckdoor.com. Now it's time for our LGBTQ plus area event calendar. Lambda Legal will be having their 2016 Indiana Benefit on Friday, September 16th from 6.30 to 10.30 p.m. at the Indianapolis Central Library. They will have a festive party with cocktails, heavy hors d'oeuvres, and an open bar. For more information, contact Bryant Dunbar at 312-663-4413 or Dunbar at lambdalegal.org. The GLBT Student Support Office is holding a Torch Porch Party on September 20th from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. As Indiana begins its bicentennial celebration, various Hoosiers have been chosen to carry an Olympic-sized torch through all 92 counties to commemorate their special anniversary. At approximately 4.30 p.m., that torch will pass right by the GLBT office, carried by Office Director Doug Bowder. Join the office for some light refreshments for our torch party as we watch the mini parade and celebrate the contributions of 
LGBTQ plus people in the history of Indiana. Spencer Pride will be having their Community Center grand opening on September 17th and 18th. Mind you all, this is the smallest town in Indiana, or not in Indiana, but in the nation, (laughs) to have an LGBTQ safe space uh, and community center. So this is a a great deal, making history right in Spencer, Indiana. On Saturday, um, the hours will be from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. and Sunday, 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. This two-day celebration will have complimentary uh, refreshments, a gift shop with locally produced items, and the opportunity for you to learn more about their new facility. You can find more information on Facebook. The launch party for this year's Indie Bag Ladies bus tour is Saturday, September 24th, next Saturday. Enjoy brunch and performances and learn the theme for this year's tour. More information can be found on the Indie Pride Facebook page. Sing with Pride Benefit for Prism Youth Community will be held in Our Hall on September 25th from 2 to 3.15 p.m. Join the audience as a group of LGBT graduate students, uh, graduate voices students, present a recital to benefit Prism Youth Community, an inclusive social group for local LGBT youth. The event will celebrate the experiences and pride of the LGBT community, as well as feature music to honor victims of the Latinx community at the Pulse Nightclub in Orlando. Reception with refreshments will follow in the Musical Arts Center lobby. Donations will be accepted at the door. The annual Disney-inspired Queer Cabaret will be held on two nights this year at the back door. It's their most magical show of the year, and this year it's twice the show. Two different casts will perform on Friday, September 24th and Saturday the 25th. Both shows have big opening numbers and plenty of surprises throughout. Doors open at 9 p.m. with the show beginning at 11 p.m. The cost is $10 for one show or $15 for both if you buy them pre-sale. Tickets are limited. Visit the Back Doors Facebook page for more information. Join the GLBT office as they launch their new Brown Bag Speaker Series. The GLBT office will be joined by graduate student Christopher Owens, who will speak with them about generational differences in attitudes and life differences uh, and life experiences with HIV and PrEP. Owens is a current graduate student in the School of Public Health at Indiana University. This event will be on September 26th from 1 to 2 p.m. Bring a friend and bring your lunch. Sigma Pi Beta will participate in Bloomington's Out of the Darkness Walk to raise awareness and funds for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention on Sunday, October 2nd. If you'd like to join the team in walking and or fundraising, contact Chapter President Bryant Hayes at brhayes1994 at gmail.com. And that's a look at your LGBTQ calendar. We'd like to thank you for tuning in tonight. If you're interested in volunteering here at WFHB or for our show, contact volunteer at wfhb.org. If you'd like to add your event to our event calendar, please email us at bloomingout at wfhb.org. You can also call us at 812-323-1200, tweet us at bloomingoutwfhb, visit our Blooming Out Facebook page, or find us on Instagram. The executive producer of Blooming Out is Joe Crawford. The producer is Ryan Shaddy. Board engineer is Sarah Hetrick. For Blooming Out and Jeff Pulling, I'm Ryan Shaddy. Tune in again next week at 6 p.m. or listen to us online at bloomingout.org.
www.thepetshop.com.